Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs. And today we're doing something a bit different, a bit more personal. So this episode you're about to listen to wasn't planned. We'd finished recording all of our interviews for this season of On Docs before George Floyd was killed. But after that video came out and we were seeing all these protests happen, we thought it warranted talking about on the show. And to help me process what's been happening, I'm speaking with Nam Kiwanuka, who works with me at TVO and who you might know as the host of The Agenda in the Summer. So she and I are going to be talking about the Ava DuVernay film, 13th, which is an Oscar-nominated doc about mass incarceration in the United States, although I would say it's about a lot more than that. Now, seeing as this is a podcast and you can't see me, you might make assumptions about what I look like. And I would say white male probably comes to mind. But what you wouldn't know is that I'm actually biracial. So my father is black and my mother's white, and I've always identified as mixed race. And being black was kind of an awkward identity for me to claim because I didn't really look black to most people. Now, when I was younger, I had an Afro, so I did get a few questions like, what are you and are you mixed? And I remember a girl once asking me if I was a half-breed, which I didn't like very much. I also heard the word mulatto a few times, which, by the way, you should never use. But mostly my experience has been as a white man. And when I have encountered racists, it was because the person saying the racist thing likely had no idea I was black. So I've never really experienced the world the way black people in Canada and the U.S. have, but I do feel as though I have skin in the game. Anyway, I'm saying all this as a prelude to today's conversation because I think it's important for you to understand where I'm coming from on this issue. So Nam and I are going to be discussing things like racism and police brutality, and I know these are very difficult subjects to hear about right now. So if you're upset by any of this stuff, I will totally understand if you would rather sit this episode out. But I do think these issues are important to talk about, and even though we're discussing it in an American context, these problems do exist in Canada too. So here it is, my conversation with Nam Kiwanuka. I don't ever, I never know how to int- start these introductions. Should I say, Nam Kiwanuka, welcome to the podcast? Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> whatever, it's your show. You do what you want. I know, you can do whatever you want, Colin, really. <laughs> well, Nam, thank you so much for joining me on, on, on Docs today. Oh, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about 13th, but the first thing I want to ask you is, how are you? Ooh, that is, uh, that is a... Uh, that is a layered question. Um, mm. I am overall, I am uh, okay, um, but not great. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but even just watching this documentary, it took me almost eight hours to get through an hour and 40 minutes. And it's not because I have, you know, I would have to turn it off when my kids walked in or, but it was just, um, it was very upsetting. I'm mm. kind of, um, I am, I don't know what to say. I feel fear. I feel hopeful. I feel terror. I feel confusion. I feel sad. Um, <laughs> and I, I've never understood why people are... Um, or offended by how other people look. Hmm. Um, 
why people feel threatened or um, afraid of other people because they look different from them. And it's, you know, I have two small kids, so I'm trying to teach them how to be good citizens and how to be good human beings. And kids are just so honest about everything and they're so curious about things. Um, and they're so loving, um, so accepting. You know, I think that's why a lot of parents have that stranger danger talk. Um, and mm. it's it's like I feel like every time I have to, when something happens in the world and I have to kind of, um, I'll use the, the word sully, uh, their worldview, I feel like I'm uh, cutting them, like leaving little scars, little nicks on them and changing them. And it's sad to watch them become to grow up faster than I would like. Uh, but honestly, I am one of those people that believes in the goodness of people. I wouldn't be in this country if it wasn't for the goodness of one person. Um, and I try to be joyful, hence Namshine. Uh, and um, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do these days. I'm trying to find joy in little things um, just to to keep happy and to to keep my my eye on the prize uh, which is to raise my children um in a loving home but the fear is the minute they leave my home I don't have control over what happens to them outside of my doors and I think that is a real fear for uh, a lot of black parents a lot of parents with children who look different uh people from different backgrounds and I just don't know I don't understand why white people can't even just begin to have this conversation um, you know I keep seeing people talk about oh this is an uncomfortable conversation to have it's a tough conversation to have and I'm and I just don't understand the choice of those words because why is it uncomfortable why is it tough? We're just talking. People live this every day. And when you say it's uncomfortable, when you say it's tough, you're already putting a barrier to just getting to know people just because they're people and they're the same as you. They just happen to look, have different skin color. And that's it. That's where it stops. Yeah. So well, that's a lot packed. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot packed into that answer. And uh, we haven't even started talking about the movie yet. But uh, and but you mentioned that you said that it took you about eight hours to get through the film. And I think you're a bit reluctant to, to watch this when you're trying to pick a film to talk about. Mm -hmm. We mentioned this one, but, you know, I think there was a bit of reluctance to, to do it. So why, why do you think that was? Why were you reluctant to watch this movie? Uh, because it's triggering. Um, and I kind of feel ashamed that it's taken me this long to watch it. I think it's been out for a year, a year and a half. Oh, no, it goes back to 2016. There you go. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not watching this. Um, but, and I feel a bit uh, ashamed I didn't watch it sooner. Um, you know, I just said that these conversations are uncomfortable and tough, and uh, maybe someone listening, I might sound like a bit of a hypocrite, because if I can't watch something like that, then, you know... Um, why shouldn't I be able to watch that and then expect other people to have these conversations? Uh, I, I think it just shows how uh, how much trauma, how much pain it is to watch something like that for some people that could just be, you know, a documentary about, you know, the mass incarceration um, institution, institutions in the U.S. Uh, 
but for me seeing images of uh for a lot of people seeing images of uh black boys and men um getting killed by police is very frightening because it's very real and you can just imagine it could be you know your brother your dad your child um but I'm glad I watched it I I do wish I had watched it sooner because it really opened up my mind to uh, a lot of things that I didn't know, um, how the system is set up, and also the players. I think there's a, I think it's very educational, and I really don't know how Ava made this without crying or breaking down, or maybe she did. I don't know, but it's uh, it's a it's one of the most important um, pieces of art that I've watched, um, and I really hope that if you if people. If, uh, if your listeners haven't watched it, that they do watch it because it is something that we all need to know about and something that we all need to, um, I guess, we need to address because the system, the way it's set up, is going to need people power. Um, if not, uh, I don't know about politicians, but I think <laughs> it's going to take more citizens uh, calling it out. Well, I'll say a little bit about what the film is about. It's it's ref- 13th is a reference to the 13th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, which says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Uh, in other words, it grants freedom to all Americans. There are exceptions including criminals. There's a clause, a loophole. If you have that embedded in the structure, in this constitutional language, then it's there to be used as a tool for whichever purposes one wants to use it. So this abolished slavery in the U.S., but there's this line, except as a punishment for crime, that the the film is making the argument that that's essentially been a used as a tool to keep black people imprisoned in one form or another. And and the film sort of takes you through, you know, the uh, segregation era up to the present era with mass incarceration and just shows just how, uh, if you look at the number of black, mostly men in in prison, which is way disproportionate to what their percentage is in the population, it is sort of a modern day form of slavery. And at least that was my take. What what did you think? Um, I mean, in the film, I think the the percentage of uh, black men in the U.S. is 6.5%, and 40% of that population uh, um, is in prison. (laughs) Um, I think people need to remember that slavery was an economic system, and money a lot of money was made on the back on the backs of um black americans and if you look at that number um because i think sometimes this is played out as you know it's a political thing it's a left thing um you know but when you look at the data the data is shocking and i don't know if it, if you were to look at that number and say that's justifiable because you're essentially saying that black People are criminals. And throughout the film, throughout the documentary, it shows how uh, that image of uh, black men was kind of drilled into, maybe not even drilled, maybe some people 
uh, it was confirmation for them what they thought. So when they saw, you know, like the Birth of a Nation um, film, um, show them this is why you should be afraid of black people. This is why we had slavery. This is why they belong in prison because they're animals. They're not humans. They're things. You know, for the white population, it may it's like a, a maybe like a duvet. It's comfortable for them because it justifies how uh, people with bigoted views feel about black people to begin with. And if you look at that number and it doesn't concern you, um, I don't know how you can even begin to address the issue of uh, racism. I mean, you can't even say the word racist, uh, as we've seen with what happened with Jagmeet Singh. Um, so mm-hmm. if you can't even name it, if you can't even talk about it, how do you even begin to address it? Yeah, the image of black men and black women, too, too to some extent, uh, is coded in just like this language of, you know, of, of the beast, of, of, of a threat. You know, like, uh, and you mentioned Birth of a Nation, which was screened in the White House, actually, uh, in the 1910s by uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was the president then. Uh, but even up to the modern day, you know, I mean, like, you know, the Woody, Willie Horton ad that the Bush campaign used against Michael Dukakis in the 1988 election, which was basically this uh, ad that showed a, uh, I guess, a black man had been paroled and he went out and assaulted two people. Right? I think he, I think he raped a woman and he may have stabbed her husband or something like that. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton. This became a focal point of an entire presidential campaign. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. And that was sort of used as an example of, you know, crime just being out of control and it was basically heavily criticized as being a very racist ad and but that imagery i think it's it's just it's incredible just how that has lasted to the present day like going back you know you know centuries ago but like it's still it's it just comes back in different forms and before it was more explicit and then it became a little more implicit you know it wasn't necessary it wasn't necessary to, to you know be so like um what do you call it you use like such like open language, openly racist language, you could sort of hide it in a way, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, something I also want to mention is just that, you know, we're talking about America a lot in this episode, but Canada is not really immune to racism or slavery. I and mean, we had slavery in this country. We disproportionately imprisoned black and indigenous people here as well. That said, is there a theme in the film that kind of resonated with you? given what we've witnessed in the last few weeks with the murder of George Floyd and and these Black Lives Matter protests? Um, I think it's the role of the media. Um, You know, you and I both work in the media. And I, you know, from my point of view, um, I don't know about about you. Like when I grew up and I was uh, in grade, when I was about to go to uh, apply for uh, post-secondary school to go to university, I was going to go into engineering, and one of my English teacher was like, "I think you should go into journalism." And I said, "What? What is it?" I, I honestly, I didn't even know what that meant. Like, what is journalism? Um, because I just never saw anybody on TV that looked like me, and I just, uh, it, I always, it was one of those. Um, it's like becoming a doctor to some people, right? It just feels so like you. D- so unattainable so i mean it's probably easier to become a doctor than it is to work in the media (laughs) for people of color (laughs) um because it is such a a closed off 
you know, it's one of those things that you have to know people. uh, Social capital plays a, a huge role in who gets their foot in the door. And it was interesting to watch the um, the documentary and how these images of of what black people look like, the criminality, the the super predators, the you know how it was forged like through the media. It made me uncomfortable to watch because working in the media as a person of color, I've had these um, um, uncomfortable feelings of why am I in why am I working in media because I feel like I'm part of the machine that uh, perpetuates these uh, stereotypes these misconceptions because you know from the birth of the nation to um, h- how they would you know the, they would take uh, uh, pictures of lynchings and they would be circulated as, you know, momentum. I don't even know what they, what the purpose of that was. Maybe just to show how, uh, if you show a crowd of like a thousand white people and you ha- you show two black bodies hanging uh, in a tree, maybe that's to send a message that you're so wor- worthless that this whole group of people um, will come to watch you get executed and no one will help you and then they'll take a picture of it like the the lack of humanity um that the media has shown towards certain groups of people is just shocking and the media refuses to step back and take um a look at itself because obviously there's not a media it's not like you can find them at you know one uh oak street (laughs) (laughs) california um but i think the institution itself we see how People just don't, even in the U.S., their reluctance to label what Trump does. Um, people will do somersault backwards. And in what we do in journalism, language matters. You can't just put, oh, might, could be. We report facts. And now watching this documentary and seeing the media adapt, like the language of the politicians, super predators, you know, all, all of a sudden if these young black men become super predators what does a super, what is a super predator what does that mean and now we've become so we live in a world where there's so much partisanship like what does it mean to be on the left what does it mean to be on the right what is the alt right like w- language matters and media plays a huge role like they decide who is the criminal who is not the criminal who decides um, who deserves empathy like we see how the opioid crisis is being covered now as opposed to the crack crisis was um because it's affecting a different population and we trust the media we, we don't question what is on the news because why would we and there was a part of the documentary that just broke my heart. One of the people um, that was being interviewed said that black people actually started to believe what was being said about themselves. For me, what's more disturbing is the degree to which black people bought into that. Animals, beasts that needed to be controlled. Many black communities began to actually support policies that criminalize their own children. You know, throughout American history, there's, there have been many, many communities, many black communities that have been super successful, and then all of a sudden they're destroyed. And then the media doesn't cover it or presents it in a different light. And this is not like, you know, 
it's not a conspiracy theory, but it's interesting how you become like it's like gaslighting. As a black person, you start to think, well, you know, and I I bring this up too because when the Black Lives Matter movement started years ago, um, what was it, 2016? When I saw that hashtag, I was like, this is really cool. Um, and then people started, well, don't all lives matter? And then I was like, well, <laughs> th- they do. And then you start to say, well, is this wrong? Is this right? Um, and it's just, it's that level of indoctrination. And I am going to use that word indoctrination because it's not, um, it's not balanced. And it's interesting how media, like, the things that I learned in journalism school, I watch the news and I'm just like, nope, that's not how you do that. Nope, that's not how you do that. But who am I uh, when you have people at the NBCs, at the CNNs, at, uh, you know, at the Fox News, those people have huge platforms and the stuff that they're saying, not always accurate. And that the language that they use, they like they take the language of the politician or whatever group and then they put it on the news and then it becomes part of the lexicon and then uh, it becomes policy, it becomes law. And then generations later, um, all these impacts of uh, black families not having the fathers in the family. And then you hear, well, black men don't take care of their children. And then you read it one stat. It says actually they do more than any other um, ethnicity. When you look at what's happened in the U.S., how many black men have been locked up? I mean, we're like, and that was, you know, for doing the different the different charges, like the lengths in the documentary. They talk about how uh, cocaine and crack are basically the same thing. One's powder, yeah. one you smoke it. And then they had completely different uh, sentencing. If you caught with powder, which would be found in the richer, affluent suburbs where white people lived, you get a less of a sentencing. But if you're found with crack, the book is thrown at you. That is, there's a lack of fairness. And I don't know why we can't have that conversation or why. And this is the part where it breaks my heart because I feel like I think a large, there is a percentage of white people who believe this stuff, who believe that black people are criminals, who believe that black people are not really people. Um, and it's okay to have these laws because that's how those people are. And yeah. that was, and for black people to even start thinking that about themselves, like, uh, it's just, it just, like, what do well, you do? Well, I, I, it's funny, actually, even Newt Gingrich in the film acknowledges that that was that was unfair. That the, that was the so drug shocking policy, to me. That was very that was very interesting. That he would actually come to that opinion yeah. uh, eventually. We absolutely should have treated crack and, and cocaine uh, as exactly the same thing. I, th- I think it was an enormous uh, a burden on the black community, but it also fundamentally violated a sense of core fairness. And that's what he says in the documentary. New now it would be interesting to see. Ask him. I don't know if Ava DuVernay asked him this as a follow up, but did he think that? cocaine should have been given the same like a higher i guess uh punishment like on par with crack or should crack have been reduced to the punishment that cocaine was which i don't think he he really answers because you know i think there's an argument to be made that the whole war on drugs has just been a disaster and that drugs should never have been always been treated as a a public health issue and not a a criminal justice one and you know I, i to the point about you know black people believing it believing some of this stuff I, I actually read a book about this a few years ago called Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, I, it, it, I think it sort of tries to present 
those black leaders and politicians in a somewhat of a sympathetic light, given what they what they were faced with. The crack ed- epidemic was a, just a horrible thing that was happening to black communities. And I think this book was trying to show that, you know, they were they were doing what they thought was in the best interest of, of black people. And I think there was also a push for like, you know, a jobs program and that sort of thing as well. It wasn't just that they wanted to uh, uh, just put black people in jail. I think they, they did really want to help uh, black people because they were suffering. Yes. Uh, and so anyway, that's all I'd say to that. No, no. And even in the documentary, there's a, uh, a gentleman, his name escapes me, but he was uh, part of, he was a policymaker. And, Charles Rangel? Uh, yes. And uh, a, a black gentleman. And he said He's that, a New York congressman. Yes. And so when Nancy Reagan, when they came up with just say no to drugs, he's like, of course, I'm going to support that because you should just say no to drugs. It sounds good. Like, But then when you unpack uh, what was going on, it was a concerted effort to criminalize a certain uh, population and without addressing whatever issues like the amount of poverty that was happening, racism, all of that stuff. So he supported that policy. And then now he's saying in hindsight, he, he wouldn't have. But at the time, he thought it was a good thing. Because again, language, right? Language yeah. matters. And you hear that you're like, yeah, of course, people should just say no. Another thing that film that brings up and we're talking about black leaders now. So, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, Asada Shakur, uh, you know, the film makes the point that, or at least I think it's Van Jones, who's mm-hmm. a CNN commentator, makes the point that a lot of these these people were killed or exiled or, in the case of the Black Panthers, you know, just completely decimated from within. They were framed as and well. Yeah. They were framed, yeah, like Asajj Kaur had to go into exile. Um, it's it's interesting that, you know, the, the film goes there because it's, it's basically saying that, you know, black people weren't, I guess, they didn't have the kind of leadership to defend them. Uh, when these policies were being enacted. We shouldn't ask, why is Bill Clinton so strong? We should ask, why is the black community so weak in our inability to defend ourselves? Let's not forget how many martyrs we put in the ground in the 60s and 70s. Let's not forget how many of our leaders had to leave the country or are in prison. You've stripped out a whole generation of leadership. You, you ran them out the country, you put them in prison, you put them in, 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 in cemeteries, and then you unleash this blitzkrieg, and we don't have the ability to defend ourselves. You can tell the story of white leadership in America and never mention the FBI one time. You can't tell the story of black leadership, not one, without having to deal with the full weight of the criminal justice system weaponized against black descent. I, I wonder what you thought of that. I had I, I'm a little skeptical of that argument, but what did you think? I mean, I uh, you, and the film also mentions uh, the murder of Fred Hampton, yes, and um, yeah. you know how he was seen as a threat because not only was he able to communicate to black people, but he had also um, white people listen to what he had to say. Um, Native Americans, Latinos, yeah, everybody like was, would listen to. Him, but and he, he was, was twenty-one. Mur- yeah, and he was murdered uh, in the middle of the night, and his pregnant wife was lying in bed next to him. Um, he was he was killed by police. The idea of leadership, you know, even with Black Lives Matter, um, like in Ferguson, this, there there has been so many disturbing reports of what happened to some of the leaders there. Um, I think there's maybe five or six of them killed under weird circumstances. 
we have to ask those kind of questions, right? And um, I think Van Jones mentioned that the power of the Black Lives Movement right now is that it doesn't have a so-called leader. So right. no one can be traced back to, you know... They can't be... They can't be delegitimized i mean the thing with the the thing what was so awful about what happened to like uh men like king and malcolm x is that the fbi and the police you know they really like went after them you know personally like they went after king's you know they 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 wiretapped him mm-hmm. you know they tried to break up his marriage i mean they just did awful things they, and then, they you called know, him they called him the most notorious liar in the country and yeah, then they just were, this past black history month they were tweeting about how awesome he was yeah. You know, I said I was skeptical of why of of that argument that Jones was making that, you know, you decimated black leadership. I guess I, I don't see it the way he does, because I feel like there were black leaders that did come out of the the 60s struggle, you know, that, you know, became, you know, very successful politicians. I'm thinking of uh, I think it was Maynard Jackson in Atlanta. John Lewis. It was Harold, yeah. John Lewis, Harold Washington. I mean, there's a lot of black leaders that did eventually rise in get into prominent positions of power and uh, did become, you know, successful mayors. Obviously we had president Obama, I think, you know, and you can argue whether or not his presidency had a, a positive impact in terms of policy for African-Americans. But I do believe that most African-Americans were very uh, uh, excited when, when he was elected. I was very excited when he was elected. Uh, so I don't know. I just, I'm a little, I'm not sure if I, I, I quite understand what Van Jones is saying. I there, think but. I think maybe what he's also saying is that, you know, again, we I bring up the media, they the media was used to portray these black leaders as criminals. Um, And it's it has to be a frightening feeling to know that, you know, Dr. King, um, there's a tape uh, in the dock and he's saying, I don't want to be a martyr. I want to live as long as anybody else in this room. But he knew so you know that you're fighting for a cause uh, because you are, it's affecting your community. And you know that your time is uh, limited. You know, as a black journalist, I am very aware that I'm one of very, uh, very few people. Um, and I, you know, Vice Magazine last year, uh, printed a report about how there were um, alt-right groups, uh, white supremacist groups who were making lists of uh, journalists, you know, who were against their cause or whatever. And I, I, something ran through my mind. I'm like, I wonder if my name is on that list. And you think about that. And again, why does it have to be black leaders who speak up for the black community? Why can't it be um, a white person? Why does it have to be someone that looks like you, that sees the trials that you're going through? Why is it acceptable that, you know, when you live in um, a, a community, animals are treated better than the people and this is the thing that makes me so frustrated. It's not a black issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a human like we should not have to debate our right to exist. And the onus shouldn't be placed on so-called black leaders to make this happen. It should be incumbent on all of us to say this isn't right. You know, the reason why, you know, one of the uh, experts she speaks to in the documentary, she says that from slavery, it just keeps morphing into different things. That's uh, right, slavery, yeah. segregation, Jim Crow, uh, redlining, um, and then all the stuff that's happening now, it just keeps 
you know, it's the same thing, but it's a different form of it. And the fact that the majority um, population is okay with it or is not paying attention to it. And that's why I said, I think it's going to take people power to change it because politicians have figured out a way to, you know, use these dog whistles like the uh, law and order uh, candidate. Um, They use these dog whistles to appeal to people who are intolerant of other people. And, you know, that tape in the documentary for me that just blew my mind away was Hillary Clinton talking about the super predators. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that, that did come back to haunt her, didn't it? I was, and, and this is the other thing, and I, I wish I had watched it earlier because... You know, Bill Clinton for a very long time was known as the so-called first black president. And you watch this documentary and you see he made things worse. Like Nixon started it and then passed the baton to Reagan. And then Reagan did his thing. But under Bill Clinton, the amount that the growth of how many people, how many black men ended up behind prison bars. And then she for Bill Clinton to receive an award from the NAACP and, uh, and, and, and this, uh, this award he actually apologizes okay fine you apologize however what you started all those policies that you started that became law have impacts for generations and I don't know how you I don't know how an apology takes away all that pain how, do, how an apology undoes uh, that damage I just don't know yeah. Well, we got to wrap up our conversation and this has been excellent. And, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you and about and talk about this film is because I do feel like there, uh, there is, there's a lot of relevance in, in what, in the themes that the film is addressing around mass incarceration, around police brutality. And we're seeing a lot of that, you know, coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement now. And it's having a real, you know, moment, you know, just in society with, uh, following the death of George Floyd and, and all these other black men and women who've been killed recently. We had this poor gentleman in Atlanta. And and, and again, you know, and, and I really am trying not to keep leave Canada out of this conversation because I do feel like we, we have to talk about our own problems here as well. But I guess I, I wonder, for, you know, as you're watching all this unfold, do you think, I mean, I think, you know, the point the film is making is that like slavery kind of re- reconstitutes itself you know it's like it's like it's like michael myers you think it's dead and then like it it comes back to life you know like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like that thing that just won't won't die basically because a lot of people are making money off it yeah and i guess i wonder if you think that given even though black lives matter is you know high in in the polls in terms of public support do you think the momentum will last do you think that that will finally we'll be able to see you know real justice real equality uh, for black people in, in canada and the u.s I don't know. I don't, I honestly don't know because actually I'm going to say, I don't think so. Um, We're taping this the day after Jagmeet Singh, um, the leader of the NDP was thrown out of parliament because he called um, another member uh, racist. And uh, according to John Michael McGrath, uh, from what I saw on his Twitter feed, apparently that's the one word that can get you thrown out. And it's been like that since the 80s. I could really? be wrong on that. Yeah. John Michael was just... thrown out? Yeah. Wow. You can't... Like, they put in a law uh, or a protocol that you can't say that word um, 
when, you know, the current prime minister, I think at one time he called someone uh, another word. He apologized, but I think that word is a bit more, I don't know, like if you, again, if you can't name it, how can you even change what's happening? Um, That's incredible. You know, and one of the things about Canada that drives me mad and also you um, is a lack <laughs> of data. We don't collect race, race-based data. It's kind of like, oh, th- there's no reason to do that. But then when you do look at the numbers of um, Indigenous children who are in care or um, in or who are in prison, uh, the amount of Black people, uh, we're like a, a, a small percentage of the population, yet we occupy these spaces in a larger percentage. And I think what's happened with the uh, the corona, uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic is allow people to maybe realize that we're all don't we all think that we're in control but we're not really in control right there's an illusion of control and maybe now people are more um they have everything slowed down so much that we can pay attention to what's going on i really hope something does happen but i worry going towards the election in the u.s things are going to get worse and Every day that I go online, there's another black person that's been killed, um, another family that's been destroyed. And and if you do see the videos, those are the videos that were captured. What about all the other people, you know, where there wasn't any video, there wasn't someone to record it. Um, and it, it, it just I just kind of wish that the people power, I just wish that everybody this was a, as big of an issue for everybody, you know, um, if something happened to your community, I would be standing shoulder to shoulder with you. This is not a political thing. This is a human rights thing. And until uh, this is a human rights issue, until everybody sees the unfairness of it, the injustice of it, I feel like politicians will find a way to take their time to re reconfigure um, the message and divide and continue business as usual. And in the meantime, families like mine, I'm as my as I watch my son grow up. I worry so much and I question why I even decided to be a parent. Um, I I've had conversations with friends. You know, I grew I was born during a civil war. I saw a lot of atrocity from a very young age. But I was able to succeed in part because my otherness wasn't what everyone saw and it didn't determine what I could be or who I could become. And I've ha- I've heard people talk about, should we move back to Ghana? Should we move back to Jamaica? Should we move back to Nigeria? At least then you don't feel afraid because having that fear hanging over your head, your kids are cute today because they're four and five. What happens when they're 11, 12, 13? They start looking like men. And they, someone is intimidated by them. Someone is fearful of them because that person was taught that when you have black skin, you are an animal, you are a criminal, you are a super predator, you are a thug, and you will hurt them. 
And how do you go up to everybody and say, this is my child. He makes me laugh. He's kind. He's sweet. He likes Pokemon. And you can't do that. And I just wish that this issue, again, was as important to everyone. This is not a black issue. This is not an, an indigenous issue. This is not... This is an everybody issue and it affects everybody in some way or form and we have to we have to care. Um if other people don't care, this is going to just be business as usual. Well said. Are you okay? Yeah, I just I you know it's interesting cuz as uh, as I complain, <laughs> I know I've complained a lot in like our team meetings and stuff about homeschooling. <laughs> but honestly, like part of there's a comfort in having my kids home because I know that they're fine and they're safe. And I have real anxiety about you know like most parents sending them back in September. But when my kid goes back in September, I also have to worry about you know that other layer of you know him being a little black kid and the perceptions that people have for him the lack of expectations that people have for him and that's something that i am i'm actually grateful to not have to deal with right now yeah well he's very lucky to have you as a parent thank you So just a little postscript to this episode you just listened to. I know this isn't an easy time right now, and this doc might be a bit overwhelming to watch. So here's what I'm going to suggest you do. I think you should still watch 13th, but I also think you should watch a few other docs that are a bit more uplifting. There's Eyes on the Prize, which is a great PBS docuseries about the civil rights movement. There's Quincy, which was directed by Rashida Jones and Alan Hicks, and it's a really wonderful film about the life and career of Quincy Jones. I laughed, I cried, I had a great time watching it. I absolutely loved it. One of the most important American music composers of all time. Definitely check that out. Finally, there's I Am Not Your Negro, which is Raul Peck's great doc about the legendary James Baldwin. And that happens to air this Saturday, June 27th at 9 p.m. on TVO and will be streaming on TVO.org after. Anyway, I just wanted to add that in. Thanks to NamQ and Nuka for joining me today. 13th is streaming on Netflix and on YouTube for free. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. You can also write to us at ondocs at tvo.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. This podcast was produced by Matthew Amara and me. Production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor, and our executive producer for digital is Kathy Bay. We'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>